Welcome to OBS Orbit, the podcast for Open vSwitch users and developers. This is episode number 57. This episode is an interview with Alex Ellis. Alex founded and leads the OpenFast project, which is an open source implementation of a serverless framework. On to the interview. Welcome, everybody, to OVS Orbit. I'm here today uh, talking to Alex Ellis, uh, who is also a VMware employee, and I, I believe you're formerly from ADP, and you uh, uh, work out of the, the UK. So it's kind of a, a rare opportunity to uh, actually talk to you in, in real life, although I've done it on the phone a couple of times. So uh, I guess you have a, a lot of experience with Docker, um, and your current project is something called uh, OpenFast. Do you want to tell us more about yourself and, and uh, sort of introduce us to the OpenFast project? Yeah, so um, there's quite quite a few bits there to that. Um, I joined VMware and I'm now in the Open Source Technology Center. And the core mission of that group, what attracted me to the position, was first the ability to continue to work on OpenFast as a community project but also um, to help VMware with its um, with being a good citizen in the open source world and also to contribute to meaningful projects or projects meaningfully. And I think, you know, having been involved with Docker for now two and a half, three years and getting through the captain's program, I've spent a lot of time in the community and with open source projects, particularly new ones that are just figuring out how to operate. And um, it's it's been an incredible journey for me. I've um, been all around the world speaking about Docker containers and um, Kubernetes and now OpenVAS and built up a lot of experience with that. And I think um, you know it's been it's been a great journey. There've been so many people that I've met along the way too. So uh, let, let's talk a little bit more about uh, uh, your experience with Docker. It, it sounds like you spent a, a long time sort of uh, uh, talking to people and, and working in the community. So so what does that what does that mean to you? Um, I mean, I talk about community a lot. A lot of people do, but I think it actually means different things to different people. Yeah, so I, I think I first really saw community modeled at Docker through um, their community marketing. Although when you first start interacting with a community, it could be something that's homegrown like the OpenFAS project, or it could be something that's started by a company and actually have people employed, and that's their job to um, generate content and connect with people. But I think when it's done best, it's natural and you, you don't realize that. You just feel an attraction to a brand or a technology. And as the more you you get involved with it, the more you get out of it. And that was kind of the experience that I had. So I produced a training course called Hands-On Docker Labs that, that really was um, my way of condensing down and explaining how to work with Docker as a tool chain and all the common kind of things I wanted to do as a programmer. And Docker picked up on that and they reached out and they said, well, you know, would you like to join our captain's program, an influencer's program, a bit like VExpert probably. And so from there, then had opportunities to speak and just um, grow grow those skills. So when I think of community, I think back to that initial engagement and touch point of 
a company actually being interested in what I was doing at a technical level and promoting that and amplifying it and giving you um, a sense of um, being appreciated for what you're doing. So I, I personally have a hard time figuring out how to balance uh, what I think of as, as community activity, outreach, uh, helping people with their problems, uh, maybe teaching people about the software I work on, uh, versus things that uh, will directly uh, make uh, uh, my, my manager uh, happy, uh, directly accomplish uh, some of, uh, uh, some of uh, our, our direct goals. Do you have trouble uh, with, with that balance, and how do you, how do you work it out? Yeah, so, well, fortunately, I didn't have that problem because I started OpenFaz as an own time project outside of working hours. And so my evenings and weekends were building this project and putting my passion into it. And before that, it was writing blog posts about Docker or technology that you could use with it like Nginx and, and Prometheus and just helping people connect with it and understand how could they use it meaningfully. So that that's... That's where I'm coming at it from, which is slightly different from where I'll come from it now and where you are, where you have objectives and you have um, management goals set for you and one thing and another. So, yeah, I'll have to find the balance, too. But I think what's worked for me is erring on the side of um, community, investing in people. And it's it's not always something that you see up front and your investment might not bear fruit. And even if it does, there's no guarantee that that tree's going to be in that place where you put it for the rest of the project. You know, people do move on. But I think when you invest in people and you show an interest in what they're doing and appreciate them, then they get a sense of belonging and they, they tend to stick around. Yeah, I've, I found the same thing. Uh, it, it's a, a difficult to make precise calculations about it, but it, it seems to uh, work out uh, pretty well uh, in the end. So uh, we, we've gone off on community uh, quite a bit. I, uh, I, I threw us off on a tangent on that uh, immediately, but uh, probably uh, I should ask uh, for the benefit of our listeners, what is OpenFast? So I was listening to Guy Kawasaki, the first evangelist, and he used to work at Apple. Now, he, he gave a great tech talk about innovation. And he started by saying that companies and corporations have mission statements, but brands have mantras. And um, the mantra of um, Nike, Nike, I believe, is authentic athletic experience or something very catchy that sums up the whole brand in one statement. I think Apple is think different, maybe IBM is think. And so for OpenFaz, the mantra is serverless functions made simple. By extension, for Docker and Kubernetes. So when I talk about OpenFaz, that's that's what it is about in a nutshell. We're providing a framework, a platform to build serverless functions with Docker images. And we want to do that in a way where it's both simple and portable. So you can avoid... Problems like vendor lock-in, you can run this on any cloud, even on any platform. There's a sub-community of people that run it on Raspberry Pis and get a lot out of that. All right. So uh, let's see. To, to break it down uh, just a little bit more for the people who are listening who might have been living under a rock for a while, what what is serverless? So s- serverless is a really hot topic right now. Definitely. Um, and we're seeing 
many projects coming out in this space, many competing projects that are very similar. But there is a strong um, drift towards compute, serverless compute. So when people talk about serverless, they're often talking about serverless compute or functions as a service, also known as FAS, which goes back to that name, OpenFAS. So the way serverless functions tend to work is they have this model that they're short-lived pieces of code, maybe a few seconds at a time, maximum a couple of minutes, which is probably far too long. They don't have their own state, which means they'll often make use of other services within your system and they are reusable so you can combine these chunks of code together to get new value the cloud providers that i think probably originated this idea they also take that one step further and they give you very granular billing on that so that it may be per invocation or some similar consumption based model now functions really come into come into their own when you look at it as an architectural pattern we have the traditional monolith, a project which or a product which may take six months to cut a release, um, 24 hours or longer of regression testing, may have a huge team behind it and actually have a lot of functionality. That's okay, but as an industry, we got excited about microservices, about breaking things down so they did fewer things. We had very constrained responsibilities. They are easier to ship and test but they're actually quite hard to manage because you have many similar services all with their own configurations. Whereas with your monolith, you maybe had one IIS server somewhere or one Tomcat configuration. Now you have potentially 20 microservices all with their own HTTP endpoints have to be monitored. You have to collect statistics and um, you then need people to support them. So... From my perspective, functions are a simplification of microservices. We're scaling down to do one single thing. They can be managed in largely the same way because they're stateless. They'll take a request and produce a response, and that is generally what they do. So they can now be managed in a more automated way, and where we may have had 10 Docker files for 10 services, 10 HTTP entry points, 10 sets of Prometheus or StatsD or Datadog logging points, we can now have one central place, an API gateway, and deploy our functions into uh, orchestrator like Kubernetes, let that take care of them, and then automate away everything that's similar. All right. Uh, so how, how far off the mark uh, is it if, uh, if, I, if I think of functions in summary as a, a, a way to um, manage containers without having to do as much of the uh, management uh, manually? So for, for me, um, that's, that's part of the story. For OpenVAS, that's part of the story. But when we look at OpenVAS, containers may be used, and I think every FAS project will use containers somewhere but you don't have to care about them as a developer most of the time your scaffold a function or you write a small piece of javascript golang c or whatever it be and then use some tooling to build and deploy that without really getting under the hood all right um, so you, you mentioned that there are many serverless projects out there so uh one I, I often have this question in my mind um, when there's uh, 
when there's the the question of of of, of some project that's needed, um, how do you decide between uh, contributing to one of them and starting your own, and and how did you go about that? Yeah, so when I looked into um, serverless functions for the first time, it was I had a um, a voice assistant an Amazon Echo Dot, and I was programming it. I was writing skills for it, JavaScript. And to begin with, I could type that into a web editor, hit save, change an ID somewhere, and test it straight away. When I started to need third-party modules and NPM modules, I had to suddenly install them on my laptop and zip them, upload a zip, and then do the same thing. And coming back to that point at the beginning of being a Docker captain, I, I was used to a flow where we were producing these artifacts that came from a docker file could be re- reproduced in exactly the same way anywhere there's no more it, it works on my machine you ship it to test staging production and get exactly the same result so looking at those functions i thought well you know i i really like this project docker swarm that lets you take hold of a bunch of computers combine them and use them as you know the internet becomes your computer almost like going back to the, the mainframe days um so I I looked around and there had been a little bit of work. Um, there was a small project started by someone at Docker, but they, while they'd, they'd done something that gave them a learning experience, it wasn't usable. And I started trying to contribute to it and I, f- and I found out maybe contributions weren't welcome or they, they were welcome, but they didn't have enough time to run it as a project. It was more more like a um, an open sourcing of something, of a thought experiment than an actual um, open source project to be contributed to. Now, there may have been a few projects around at the time, but none that used Swarm, and that was what I was interested in. So I started to build one out, and um, it was actually in JavaScript. I've, I got some feedback on it. It turned out to be really, really popular. Um, and then I switched direction and build, started to build it out in Go. And I think that's where it, it started to become much more robust. I tried to represent any state that I had in the system within the orchestration platform rather than having to have a separate persistence store. And that made it very attractive to people because you could deploy it in a few seconds and then start working with these functions. Now, today, I'll just say that um, OpenFAS works with Kubernetes and Docker Swarm, but Kubernetes is really the focus point and where, where the project will really shine. So a part of the answer then is that uh, when you started, there wasn't really something that, that suited the requirements, so you built something that did. I think um, there wasn't something that that worked in the way, yeah, in the way that I that I wanted, um, and I started to build something, and I never really realized it would turn out to be this project with uh, um, eleven thousand GitHub stars. Um, 91 contributors and and people all around the world that I can um, talk to and meet up with while I've been in Austin. I'm sorry, while I've been in Palo Alto, I've actually met two of the people from the project in the core contributors group and um, one of them for the first time, which was really great. That's a a pretty good success already. How how long have you been working on OpenFest? So this goes back to November, December 2016. Not that long, then. 
No, uh, no. It's quite, uh, uh, quite, quite quick. So uh, the, this podcast is, is usually about networking. So uh, I'll ask a few networking questions, and maybe the answers are that it isn't really relevant. So uh, what, what kind of relationship is there between uh, OpenFast and, and networking? Is it, is it just a client of the network? How much does it care about uh, um, what services the network provides? The way OpenFast came about was looking at a platform, Docker Swarm, which is now which I'm now using also Kubernetes, and thinking how can I build functions using the primitives that have been made available to me. And in um, in Kubernetes, for instance, we create a deployment, and that's a kind of um, metadata. It's a declarative metadata that says, this is what I would like you to do. The deployment gets some basic networking. It will create something called a pod. The pod has an IP address, but it can change. And that deployment is probably not all you need. You need to create something called a service, which is a um, a way of exposing part of the system. So a, a pod which has a container inside it, you can use a service to point at it. So if you have let's say four or five pods, you each have an IP address, they become part of um, the deployment. The best way to talk to them is through a service so that if there's any changes in the pods or the IP addresses, we can then um, abstract that away. Or the service will do some kind of load balancing, it will check for um, whether an endpoint is healthy. And so it's a lot of work at layer seven, all in the application domain. that works really well, but Kubernetes actually has quite a complex model for networking, and you can start to do things really, really interesting things like place your um, objects in different namespaces and then enforce a network policy between them. So, uh, what, the f- what 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 uh, would the components of a policy be? So, the the policy that I've seen so far tends to support things like um, a label. A label matcher or a namespace matcher or some other criteria whereby you can decorate your primitives and say right these live in the these services live in the open faz namespace the functions live in the open faz fn namespace so we'll set up a policy that says there's no traffic from the functions namespace to the services so that you can't get back to the to the RESTful API, the administrative API, and delete all the functions, for instance. You can't have a rogue function. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a really interesting area. And the more um, OpenFAS delves into Kubernetes and the more that community grows, the more opportunities there will be to to take advantage of networking features like that. So one of the networking building blocks I keep hearing about in Kubernetes and container uh, contexts is uh, service proxies and service meshes. Is there a relationship there? Is it uh, what what does that make you think of in a open fast context? I guess. Yeah. So, service mesh. An example of that would be Istio. I was at KubeCon in Austin in December, and there were probably around a dozen talks about that project it's gaining a lot of popularity and um, I believe it works at layer 7 which means that you can do a lot of things in software whereas normally you would have needed some very um, specialist knowledge to work at at that level or even hardware you may do things like um, deploy two versions of a service and split the traffic proportionately 
and then update that definition and then have that reflect. The other, the other thing that's related to that is the use of a, what's called an ingress controller. An ingress controller is where you would set something like a reverse proxy on the outer edge of your cluster or your network and then define a bunch of rules for domain names and HTTP routes whereby you can take traffic from outside and have that intelligently map to things inside. Uh, a load balancer. So in Kubernetes terminology, you may have a load balancer exposing the ingress controller. And this is where it starts to get super confusing for new for new people, particularly for me when I when I came from that background of just running Docker images. A pod can have its own IP address. So can a service and then you can either expose a service with a load balancer or with a port on a single node or by installing um, an ingress controller. And you have all of these options. And this goes back to why um, a project like OpenVAS is relevant, is that rather than having to learn all of these pieces and, and parts and use them intelligently and be confident, you can take something that makes most of the decisions for you based upon the experience gained in the community and then just deploy chunks of code. I see, I see. Uh, so it, it provides almost like a, a standardized configuration that, that saves uh, uh, the, the users from having to understand all the, all the implications of it themselves. That's right. And so from that perspective, you're able to iterate quicker, iterate faster, get your, get your code from in your head to production in potentially minutes. And because we're looking at very small chunks of code, that I, I believe there's a less resistance to pushing pushing this kind of thing out. A great scenario might be a company looking to modernize or to get into the world of containers of their existing deployments, and they don't really want to touch them. They work well, they generate revenue. Perhaps what they could do is deploy a small Kubernetes cluster with OpenVAS and start shipping functions and then use them to integrate together or to bring in new data or new functionality around that existing stateful monolith. So uh, we have a couple of questions from uh, from listeners uh, via Twitter from uh, earlier this week. So I, I thought I would uh, run those by you. So uh, first, uh, my, uh, my, my friend uh, Yatish Kumar asked... Uh, uh, does serverless infrastructure lead programmers to care less about efficiency? What do you think? I think that's a good question. I I guess the 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 loaded question there is: if you are less involved in the detail, will you will you produce something that maybe doesn't perform as well? Maybe you. You're not a, you're not able to optimize it to the same level. If you are being billed per millisecond to run your function, it may actually be the opposite effect. That was that was actually uh, a thought that I saw shared on Twitter recently. Is that now that you are being scrutinized per function call invocation, perhaps it may go the opposite way, and actually you realize that a func- a piece of code that runs for two seconds per request isn't tenable or isn't scalable and then maybe it will actually bubble that up to you whereas before that might have been deeply embedded within a stack now you have these metrics that are reading every function call and telling you exactly how long it takes to execute so i think 
providing observability is very important and I I don't I don't know whether um the code will be less efficient that people will write or more efficient but I know it will be um a smoother experience and I think this is going to um bring compute on best practice technology to you know modern technology like Docker and Kubernetes to anybody who wants it it's interesting that um, in the past, when I've profiled a program, I've been able to find out, uh, for example, how many milliseconds a function runs for. But I've, I've never directly translated that to how many dollars did it cost to uh, run that function. Yes. And, you know, I'm mentioning this, but really with, with OpenVAS, there is, no, there is no chargeback other than you monitor the resources in your cluster and decide whether, whether you think you have enough to continue at that rate. Now, one property that we haven't talked about is the idea of auto-scaling. So given a certain amount of requests per second or even um, a certain level of memory or CPU consumption within a function, we may see auto-scaling behavior kick in and then more replicas of that being added into your system. When you look at something like um, a hybrid cloud or um, fully on-cloud deployment, you can probably request more virtual machines or more hardware as well as requesting more replicas of your function. And I think that is going to help us um, see these systems that could potentially scale to to some kind of almost infinite size, depending on what is happening when you get your Black Friday traffic, for instance. So what, what this question made me think of is the difference between programmer efficiency and runtime efficiency. I, I think the, uh, the person asking the question is asking, uh, what's the runtime efficiency? But it's also important to keep track of how much time it's taking your programmers to uh, actually uh, design something and, and set it up and, and program it. Uh, do you think that uh, functions lead to increased programmer efficiency? I think that careful and thoughtful abstractions help us to focus on solving a specific problem. I've seen, from my own experience, trying to write code in C, and I have a lot of respect for people that do that on a day-to-day basis. But taking that and the memory management and the problems it can introduce when you're maybe not experienced enough to, to understand all the complexities and subtleties... And then moving to Java or moving to something leaner like Go and being able to produce applications very, very quickly that are both reliable and safe. Now, they may have a larger memory footprint. They may run slightly slower. But we have this new um, commodity compute available, the cloud. And even when we don't have our um, full cloud, we may have a data center where we can take use of resources dynamically and so i think there may be a similar reflection there we had the assembly and the c programming that was extremely efficient low level but then when we actually moved up the stack and we got these higher level programming languages we were able to be more um let's say more productive at a slight cost and so this the same may apply here but ultimately Introducing these abstractions and using them in the right place will help people work faster. That makes sense. 
and then we had a, a second question from uh, Leandro Reacts on, on Twitter, and his question was, uh, uh, what, what are your plans for uh, advanced metrics-related uh, scaling and, uh, and, and using the, the network providers to choose where to run a function? I'm, I'm not sure I fully understand the question. Uh, so let, let's see whether uh, whether you do and what what are your thoughts? Yeah, let's let's break that into two parts. So the f- the first part was asking particularly about um, advanced metrics for scaling. By the current stack includes a auto scaler that works on the requests per second. Will then scale the replicas proportionately. And it use it does that by measuring the invocation rate with Prometheus, and then a um, a tool that works really well with Prometheus by the same project called Alert Manager, will send a HTTP request to the API gateway with the alert, and it will say firing. We will then increase the replica count, and that alert has a back off. It won't fire again for another n seconds. At which point, if the traffic is still at the threshold, it will scale up again. And so that's a default model. And the reason why that's useful is because it gets people to have an understanding of how autoscaling may work. And that is agnostic of the backend. So Swarm, Kubernetes, or even some of the other projects that have been built to use OpenFAS will all work exactly the same. When you come to the Kubernetes ecosystem, the the benefit of working within that that community is that they're tackling this problem too. They have something called a horizontal pod scaler. Horizontal pod scaler version 2 can take the memory measurement or the CPU measurement from a container and then scale that up using rules that you can apply to. And so I think in terms of advanced metrics, we can currently offer you both options. And as we move forward and the Kubernetes community moves forward, we may see HPA 3 and 4 and this become a much more common commodity. What, what I'm particularly interested in is not scaling up, but scaling to zero. And then being able to intelligently scale up and potentially pause requests synchronously until there's a replica ready to handle them. And that isn't necessarily an easy problem. But I think it's one that helps validate the the usage of something like uh, an on-premise FAS versus a cloud FAS. The second half of the question was uh, uh, how will or, or how can uh, OpenFAS use uh, networking providers to choose where to run a function? So networking providers, perhaps the, the question is looking to um, cloud providers or even multi-regions. We could have OpenVAS deployed within um, a data center of multiple availability zones and use things like node constraints to schedule the functions in a certain area. We could have multiple replicas. Um, I think that would be that would be an interesting question to dig into and um, you know find out a bit more. So I have a question that's almost a, a philosophical here. So uh, back in the uh, the age of the dinosaurs, we had uh, you know one computer, and then eventually uh, people started uh, uh, having multiple computers. And uh, in uh, and and sometime after, uh, uh, we we started uh, breaking them those down into virtual machines. Uh, and uh, virtual machines gave way to containers, and now uh, individual containers are giving way to functions. At, at each point, we uh, sort of break things down further and further. 
do you think there's something smaller than a function? What, what do you think the, uh, uh, the, the next uh, uh, granularity of compute is going to be? I, I think that whoever, whoever knows that could be a very rich person, could be a very rich man. Um, I think we st- we're still trying to understand what functions are. And oftentimes I will hear people say, okay, well, you know, the, what was going to come after containers was really this idea of a, um, a unikernel, a, a piece of software that had everything it needed to run and was a single binary, maybe even covered a networking stack. I haven't seen a lot of work in that area. I haven't seen it um, really, really blossoming. But this area around serverless, I have. And I think the the thing people probably don't realize is that serverless functions run in containers, which run in VMs, which run on hypervisors, which run on huge machines. And so none of this has ever gone away and it's all there. It's just that sometimes it gets pushed down the stack. And right now we're in a place where there's a lot of interest about serverless compute, but it's not the only pattern that we need to design systems. We still need state. And those serverless functions need teams behind them, monitoring them. Somebody needs to be in your dashboard reading the metrics and handling alerts, even if you no longer care about your servers or your Kubernetes cluster automates everything. Somebody still has to be there as a site reliability engineer to make sure that your application is up and to be able to respond to events. It's a good point. So uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the OpenFaz uh, dev model. Uh, from talking to you a few days ago, I, I realized that it, it's quite different from the Open vSwitch uh, development model, uh, even though, of, of course, uh, we're both open source projects. Um, and I'm always interested in, in learning about uh, how, how other projects uh, do it, because uh, that, that way there, there's always uh, something, something new that you can uh, potentially benefit from. Uh, I, I suspect that in general, uh, your approach is much more modern than, uh, than, than ours. Uh, so uh, one, of the, one of the things that you said to me, that uh, for, at, at, uh, when, when you said it, I almost boggled because I, I didn't quite understand how you could do it, was that you don't have mailing lists. So how does your team communicate? How, how do you uh, talk to each other uh, work, uh, when you uh, want to work on OpenFaz or talk about it? Yeah, so I think ma- mailing lists are something that goes back to the beginning of the internet, really, and Usenet groups. I I started OpenFaz almost accidentally and then built it up. But one of the things that I'd really got into was um, tooling like Slack, particularly from being relate, you know, within the Docker community. And I'd seen it used, become popular. And so when I started OpenFaz and I wanted to communicate with people more synchronously, I created a Slack group and invited them there. And now that has several hundred people in there. They're, they're not all active, but there's there's new people joining every day. The core contributors are there. And then we're able to slice it up into public and private channels where we have focused topics. Now, I think that the thing about Slack is you can get to a point where there's so many notifications, people feel like they can't ever keep up with them. And so having topics is important and email still has a place. So if I want to schedule an event, 
there's a couple of ways you can do that. You can send a notification to everyone in the community and it turns out people don't like getting those. Or you can um, do the same thing by sending them an email. But then you have to collect the email addresses. And so I think having a mailing list could be a great way of announcing things and getting these important notifications out. Whereas Slack can be a good place for um, semi-real-time communication and when people have questions and just want to share what they're doing. Now, the other place that we have, which I think is is kind of like a mailing list, is is GitHub. So we tend to use that for all of the issues, all of the patches that come through via pull requests. And so I raised an issue recently, and it was about um, trying out GPU support within OpenFast functions. And I just wrote up a few bullets and a couple of links to the Kubernetes documentation, and we already had three or four people come and comment there. The problem is when people comment there and on Slack and maybe on Twitter and trying to consolidate that, but it's a good problem to have. Yeah, uh, definitely the the problem of having too many places uh, to uh, to talk about something uh, can really be a, a problem as well. So uh, uh, just to, I guess, double-click on this a little bit, um, one of the ways that I use email is, is almost as a, a way to organize my to-do list. When someone sends me an email, then I, uh, I, I generally uh, act on it and then delete the email. Um, and and so uh basically if if my uh if my inbox is not empty and it never is then i, I know i have something to do um i I, ha- I guess i haven't found anything quite equivalent to that on on slack is there a uh notification notifications come in but i i haven't really maybe i'm not using it the same way but i i haven't discovered a way that you can sort of you know keep things on a uh active and not forget about them you're you're right i mean i i may take a a 10 hour flight over here and come open my phone and there's 12 different channels or dms on openfast and it's like schrodinger's cat until you click on it it hasn't happened so and you haven't you haven't ignored it and you haven't forgot to answer it and so sometimes i just may leave them um unread for a while until I think I have some time to potentially act on it. But you, you never know what's going to be in the box. You click on it, <laughs> you know, who, who knows who knows what the question's going to be. Are you going to need to then go from your mobile to the web, to your website to look up something in the documentation to paste it back? And yeah, I think, you know, there's definitely um, efficiencies to be had there. Within GitHub, there's something that I don't think a lot of people know about, and it's a notifications page. And I really... Um, use this a lot because it goes across repositories across projects and I'll click on it and then it will show me all of the projects and in date order the notifications where somebody has tried to chat to me or I've been involved in an issue or someone's raised a pull request and wants a review and so every day a few times per day I'll sit down and I'll open the notifications and I'll work through a few of them. Okay, so that that sounds uh, useful. I've, I've I've noticed that, but I, I probably don't pay as much attention to uh, to, to GitHub notifications as, as maybe I should. Uh, so uh, one of the problems that I've had as an open source developer is uh, finding the users and figuring out who they are and being able to talk to them because the the users are ultimately the ones who determine whether your project is is useful. Um, but when it's open source, they don't have to tell you that you're using your software. And at least in the OVS case, usually they don't. So it, it's hard to get feedback. 
um, what, how do you manage that? First of all, I'd like to, um, to agree with you. It is hard to get feedback. And my observation is it's maybe 80% of the time it's not offered unless there's a problem or unless something's wanted. But I'm finding more and more that percent percentile is changing. And um, we, we spoke about how do you balance time with your manager? How do you make sure you achieve your objectives? So one of the things that I've received recently is a lot of emails. People say, you know, I really like your project, I really like your conference talk. And I'll, I'll try to forward those on now so that um, the people who are, who are trying to figure out your goals and how to manage you and your pro- and maybe what resources are available for your project can see that visibility and they can see that actually this is a really important part of it. And, you know, it's also great just to get that validation. Um, Just before I came out here, I got an email from Yoast at BT Research in England. And he told me he's been using OpenFast for seven months. It's been transformational to, to their microservice architecture. And the first thing that I thought was how can you've been using it for seven months and you've never told me about it? This this sounds like such a great use case. And as we started talking on a, on a Zoom call, I found out that he didn't know that we had asynchronous invocation built in or we didn't have support for X and Y and Z. And so, yeah, I think it's incredibly hard to have a distributed open source project that's given away for free that doesn't offer incentives for people to give feedback. So by creating a community and by running regular meetings, there's a platform and an openness where people can offer feedback and they can communicate with you. Um, my my advice would be to to maybe look at some of the things that we're doing in terms of um, a weekly or bi-weekly call, starting something that maybe how to contribute to this project, and making sure that you have some guides, uh, an easily accessible website, and maybe maybe you, it's not the right time to start your own Slack community, but there may be something similar that you can try that's a little bit different. I'm I'm interested in this this weekly call. To tell me about it, is it uh, what who who are the main people attending, and and what tends to get talked about? So the the call um, is probably actually twice per twice per month, sometimes every week, and I will generally set an agenda for that. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to find a, a running schedule for it because I've been traveling so much over the last 18 months. However, um, just before I came out, I set up a call called How to Contribute to OpenVAS. We even doubled or trebled the normal amount of people that come to that. And what I did a few days before sending the meeting invite was to promote it on Twitter and just to share it and say, you know, if you'd like to come, show your email address and it seemed to really work that call to action there was um so i think there's something in that and i think working with in the open source technology center there you know open isn't in a unique position there's many other projects where people are really wanting to know how do you start how do you do these basic things as a maintainer and particularly in the Docker Captains program, I feel like we encourage each other to get deeper and more technical and more involved. And it's hard to, to step back and take that perspective as a new user 
thinking, well, how, you know, how do you edit the commit where you didn't sign it off and push it up again? Yeah. Uh, those those questions uh, are, are the sorts of things that the people uh, need answers to, and uh, some some people uh, uh, definitely uh, one one form of asking and answering a question work, works better than uh, for others. So, is there typically a, a, a specific topic for an individual call, or is it a general discussion? Um, yeah. So I've I've tried several different things. Um, sometimes, if there's some some new features in the project or an area that needs contribution, I'll um, start the call off with a, a theme for for the call and then go through a very short briefing, maybe 10 to 20 minutes, where I'm giving updates about the project. And then I always try to give space over for a roundtable where maybe the, the 10 to 20 people that have come can each introduce themselves, see what they've been working on, what they're working on next. And I think that sometimes some of the best parts of that call is where everybody gets a chance to to talk to each other and give the context of how they're involved in the project is it something that you record and publish yes they they're recorded and published the um the playlist is unlisted but it's shared with um the contributors i see i see so uh, let's see. We've been talking for a while now, so um, I, I should probably uh, finish up and let you uh, get back to uh, real work. Uh, but uh, just a couple things uh, before that. So uh, what's next for uh, for OpenFast? Uh, maybe in terms of uh, you know features, but but maybe in terms of where you uh, where you want to take the the community or or, or some of your uh, uh, your other goals for it. Yeah, there's a number of things um, that that we're working on at a technical level. Now, I really like to be involved in the community and to make connections with people. And through that, I've learned about at least four or five industry-style use cases for OpenFast. What I'll try to do is engage with those people and find out how they're doing, get some more information, see if we can't help them out a little bit. And then formulate that into part of my my deck so that when I go around and present on OpenFAS, I can show human beings behind the project that where they have a pain point and we've been able to help them. Some of the um some of what I've seen is people will build their own CI C D mechanism for for their functions. And almost every time it's the same. Same kind of shape. So I thought, wouldn't it be great if I could do that for the project and then have that made available for other people to use? So that's something that I'm doing right now. And I'm trying to get interest within the community for people to help me build that because that's going to be part of the wider initiative going on within the OpenFAS project. One of the other wider initiatives is to integrate with events. So when you look at a cloud FAS, they they sometimes have an advantage because they can lock lock you in by making it so easy to use the events from their database, the events from their storage, with, with potentially no hops in between. So what I'm trying to do, and a lot of other projects are interested in this too, is to bring those events back to the people, democratize them by writing connectors and producers and brokers that can stand in the middle and subscribe to topics and then relate those back to functions. I think that's going to be an exciting area. 
These really sound like the sort of, I, I guess I think of them as, as, as second order features that, that really start to indicate the maturity of a project in its particular area. Are, are these features that will uh, distinguish uh, OpenFAS among the, the, the collection of, of projects that, that do uh, uh, functions as a service? Some some of the features, I think, have really been ahead of the curve. For instance, just before KubeCon, I was, um, I was getting some feedback from a from a friend who was a, a UX designer and I'd also had this community suggestion a bunch of times about doing a function store a common place where you can open the UI click a button and just deploy a function that makes sense to people and so I was able to put that together really quickly with some help from a contributor Ken in Japan and to ship it and release it and it's definitely one of the most popular parts about OpenFAS right now. And I don't think anyone else is doing it in the open source world. Great. Uh, so uh, just to, to wrap up a little, uh, so what, what are the, the best ways for people to find out more about uh, OpenFAS or, or to uh, contact you? So the best way to find out about OpenFAS is openfaz.com. From there, you can get through to GitHub where you can learn how to contribute contributions don't even have to be golang code they could be testing it out and telling us what's wrong it could be following the documentation updating it even writing a blog post so the contribution guide goes through that we have the slack channel that we just talked about the invitations are open for that and at docs.openfaz.com there's lots of information about the architecture and after you've deployed OpenFAS, there's a link through to the workshop that's being built in the community so we're talking about second order features and, and parts of the project this is almost like a third level or set third order feature which is a self-paced workshop seven to eight markdown files that you can look at in github using your existing workflow and just progressively earn, learn open fares and start leveraging functions uh well uh thank you for uh, uh for talking to me about open fares. thanks thanks for the interview ben OBS Orbit is edited and produced by Ben Pfaff using Audacity audio editing software and released under the Creative Commons Unported 3.0 license. The intro and bumper music in this episode is excerpted from Electro Deluxe by My Free Mickey and the outro from Girls Like You by Stefan Kartenberg, both under the Creative Commons Attribution Unported 3.0 license. For more episodes of OVS Orbit, visit ovsorbit.org, or for more information about OpenVSwitch, visit openvswitch.org.